Friends, to look to Christ for strength is to behold his glory in his word, to receive it by faith, and being empowered by his spirit to then obey him in fear and trembling, to the glory of God our Father. Such is the comfort that belongs to the children of God. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul helps us understand how the word of the gospel produces the comfort of true fellowship and repentance and joy. Now, after exhorting the Corinthians, especially those who were still under the influence of the false apostles, after urging them to reconcile to God and the true gospel by reconciling themselves to Him, after calling them to separate themselves from these unbelievers because of the holiness of the church, after admonishing them not to receive the grace of God in vain, Paul now addresses the church a little differently. He points out how the majority of their members did not receive God's grace in vain, and that they had truly repented. God's surpassing power had been revealed in their lives. They had received gospel comfort. And in that work of God, Paul greatly rejoices. You see, Paul writes these words to not just build up the repentant and encourage them, but he also does it to teach the unrepentant how the reconciling grace of the true gospel produces fellowship and repentance and joy. So that's what we'll see this morning. So turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 6. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 to 6. 2 to 16. And let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would now teach us to grieve over things that You would grieve over and to rejoice over things that You would rejoice over. Comfort us, O Lord, so that our hearts would be filled with joy as we minister the gospel to one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's not uncommon these days to hear both evangelical pastors and Christians getting excited about the size of their churches, the number of baptisms they did in a year, the scope of their budget, the number of programs they run at church, and the effectiveness of their their social media presence. None of these things, of course, are bad things to think about. But if that's all that gets you excited, if that's all that you can think about, well, I want to suggest that perhaps their excitement in some ways is informed by their understanding or or lack of understanding of what the church is. Now, when you read the New Testament you will be hard-pressed to find any kind of excitement, let alone discussion concerning such matters or related matters. Instead, you will hear the Apostle John saying things like this, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. 
2 John 1.4. You will hear the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 16, rejoicing over the repentance of the Corinthians, not because it was such a great statistic to boast about, but because this news comforted him in his affliction. It enabled him to persevere, and it glorified God. You see, in, in, this, in the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 to 18, Paul demonstrates that the comfort that was announced by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament for God's people, that good news, that message of saving grace, he says that that was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who inaugurated the new covenant. And in this letter, Paul labors to show that the power of the gospel that he proclaimed was active in the lives of these Corinthians who had the Spirit abiding in their hearts. This gave Paul great joy and confidence that God was bringing about the redemption of his new creation, of the citizens of his kingdom that Isaiah had prophesied about. You see, what gets Paul excited is the evidence of God's reconciling grace in the lives of these Christians. He's excited about the surpassing power of the gospel that is visible in the weakness of believers. You see, Paul has learned to see, not with the eyes of the flesh, from a worldly perspective, but to see all things through the lens of the gospel and the new covenant. He has learned to see with Christian eyes. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he says in 1 Corinthians 2.2. Paul doesn't glory in external appearances like those false apostles. No, he is concerned about the hearts of believers. He rejoices over things that God rejoices over. And he grieves over things that God grieves over. And he calls the Corinthians and us to do the same. Now, as we look at this passage, I want you to remember that the whole point of Paul's exhortation is undergirded by the fundamental truth that only his gospel, the apostolic preaching of the cross. Only his gospel and not the false gospel of these Jewish teachers can comfort the Corinthians. And the first truth that we must learn to see and rejoice over is this. The gospel comfort of genuine fellowship. The gospel comfort of genuine fellowship. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> Paul says, Make room in your hearts for us. Now, this is similar to his exhortation in chapter 6, verse 13. Widen or enlarge your hearts. The difference is that in chapter 6, verse 13, he's talking to those who needed to repent. Whereas here, he is speaking to the repentant. He's rejoicing over their repentance, in fact. And he uses a, a different Greek word. To make room means to, to hold us, hold on to us and make progress. This call, of course, is grounded in Paul's integrity. They must hold on to him because he is a true apostle of Jesus Christ. He has a clear conscience towards them. 
even though those false apostles were accusing him of deceit and craftiness because he didn't take money from them. We see that in 2 Corinthians 12, 16. Paul's life, however, commended the gospel that he was preaching. The gospel he preached empowered Paul by the Spirit to live a life of holiness. And so he says, look at the verse, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we had taken advantage of no one. He dismisses these accusations. The false apostles, on the other hand, who were preaching another gospel, they were living unholy lives. So listen to what they were doing. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Paul says to the Corinthians, For you bear it, if someone, referring to these men, if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. You see, these false teachers were living up to the values and expectations of Corinthian society. The reconciling grace of the gospel, or gospel comfort, was not evident in their lives. They did not experience the comfort that Paul had. Beloved, beloved, remember what biblical comfort is. Biblical comfort or gospel comfort is God in Christ acting in us by His Spirit through faith in His Word. Let me say that again. Biblical comfort or gospel comfort is God in Christ acting in us by His Spirit through faith in His Word. You know, this comfort is nothing other than the power of the gospel at work in the lives of His children. It's the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1, Paul teaches us that the only way we can experience this comfort is by believing in the true apostolic gospel. To know God through Jesus Christ is to know Him as the God of all comfort, who comforts not only His true apostles, but all His children through His word. He does this so that we might be able to comfort others. This gospel comfort produces genuine fellowship. Look at verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you. You see, Paul is concerned here that as he holds fast to his integrity, he might be interpreted as accusing these repentant members of saying the very things that the false teachers were saying. And so he says, I'm not saying these things to condemn you. Because we have this kind of relationship that these false teachers know nothing of. Look at the text. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before, you are in our hearts. How can I condemn someone who is in my heart? Now, when did he say that to them? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. You see, Paul loved these Corinthians. But this is more than just a, a warm feeling he's talking about. This is about a unique spiritual fellowship he has with them because of the gospel. You are in our hearts for what? Look at the text. To die together and to live together. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul teaches us that God does this. He establishes this fellowship 
through the gospel. He says, it is God who establishes us with you, that's fellowship language, in Christ. That's gospel comfort creating this unique spiritual fellowship. This is not Paul saying, I love you and we are in this together to live together and to die together. We'll be best friends till the very end. You know, if he was saying that, then he would say to live together and to die together. But he doesn't say that. Look at the text. He says to die together and to live together. Isn't that interesting? You only see that pattern in the gospel. Death first, followed by a resurrection. You see, what Paul is doing here is that he's reminding these Corinthians and us of this precious and sweet fellowship, this interdependence that believers have because of the gospel. The dying and living together is nothing but our identification with Christ as His body, the church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10, that as jars of clay, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. According to Paul, our afflictions, our sufferings, our sorrows, our discouragements, all of them are death-like. Figuratively speaking, we we die. Our lives are shaped by cross-like afflictions. God ordains this. He leads us into these trials. Why? So that He can comfort us so that He can work His life-giving resurrection power in our afflictions and sustain us. And when He does this, His power is made evident in our weakness, and He gets all the glory. You see, when God comforts us in our suffering, He not only cheers our spirits and calms our fears, He also emboldens us in our beliefs. And He empowers us to do what is God-glorifying. You know, that's what true comfort and true encouragement does. God enacts, as it were, the sufferings of Jesus in our lives so that He can reenact His resurrection in our mortal, perishable bodies. And those resurrection-like, spirit-empowered comforts are nothing but a foretaste of our final bodily resurrection. And yet, as we saw In chapter 1, our our figurative dying and and rising, the comfort that we receive through that experience as we look to God who raises the dead, that comfort is meant not just for us, not just for our comfort. No, it's meant to be shared with those God Himself has established us with in Christ, with fellow members in the body. The resurrection power of Jesus' life at work in us, that gospel comfort, is meant for ministry. We are comforted so that we can comfort others. And Paul is saying to these repentant Corinthians, I know that that's the kind of fellowship and relationship that we have. Look at verse 4. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I'm not beating around the bush. I'm giving it to you straight. I have great pride in you. He delights in this fellowship. And what does that produce in him? I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, 
I am overflowing with joy. See, there's something that God has done in these Corinthians so that through them, in fellowship with them, Paul receives comfort in his afflictions and, this, and the nature of this relationship causes him to rejoice, to overflow, to abound with joy. Beloved, I wonder if this is how you see your relationship with other members in this congregation. Does the gospel you believe cause your heart to delight in other brothers and sisters, knowing that they are God's instruments to bring about your repentance when you sin and to bring about your joy when you suffer? Do you keep everyone at at arm's length? Or do you have people in your life who can speak and act towards you in great boldness? Who are willing to speak the truths of God's word to you even when it's uncomfortable and awkward? People who are willing to do this because they know that they are called to die with you and to live with you. You know, Paul says that the gospel comfort that created that genuine fellowship between them is the reason he himself is filled with comfort in his affliction and that causes him to rejoice. Now the question we should ask is this. In what way did God comfort the Corinthians? And how did God work in them? And how did that work reach Paul to comfort him in his affliction? And that brings us to our second point. The second truth that we must learn to see and rejoice over is this. The gospel comfort of genuine repentance. The gospel comfort of genuine repentance. See, Paul goes on to explain how the power of the gospel in the lives of these Corinthians ministered to him and led to joy in his affliction. Look at verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. You know, here Paul returns to the story that he began to tell us in chapter 2, verse 12. After he wrote that severe or tearful letter to the Corinthians and sent it to them through Titus, he came to Troas, hoping to meet him and hear about the Corinthians' response. But Titus had not arrived. And so Paul was very concerned and he was distressed. Even though his spirit was not at rest, he refused to be paralyzed and he moved on to Macedonia to continue his ministry there. And work there was hard. It was hard labor. He says our bodies had no rest. This was a physically challenging time for Paul. But then to add to his distress, he was opposed by people in Macedonia. Look at the text. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Contending with external threats and problems, as well as dealing with his inner anguish. Distressed about his situation in Macedonia, as well as being fearful about how the Corinthians would respond to his letter of rebuke. You know, that was Paul's physical and spiritual condition in Macedonia. Now friends, if this was you, what would have made you happy? 
What sort of comfort, what sort of divine relief would you have wanted in that situation? Well, look at the comfort that Paul received. Verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Beloved, the revelation of who God is in these words ought to be a soothing balm for your souls this morning. Our Father is the God who comforts the downcast. Downcast. Does that describe you this morning? Are you depressed, dejected, burdened, weary, perhaps contrite over your sin, brokenhearted, discouraged? Oh, friend, listen to the word of the Lord. He is a God who comforts the downcast. He is the source of all comfort. It is He who keeps His promises by sending His Son, who calls us into fellowship with Him by filling us with the new covenant blessing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whom Jesus calls the Comforter. This is how Isaiah described the restoration of Israel. Isaiah 49, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens. And exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. And Paul sees this being fulfilled in the church. Paul says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us. How? By the coming of Titus. Did you see that? God is the source, but His blood-bought people are the means, the instruments by which He dispenses His comfort. Beloved, do you have someone like Titus in your life? Perhaps more? Are there a few members, brothers, or sisters that you know that you can rely on? to minister to you in your time of need? Beloved, look around you. These members are the God-ordained means for your comfort and joy. Don't deprive yourselves of the comfort that God Himself wills to give you. Don't deprive yourselves of that comfort by isolating yourselves in your pain. You know, the very coming of Titus was a comfort to him. I hope you see that in the text. Because he knew Titus' godly character. Paul calls him my true child in a common faith, Titus 1.4. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 16, Paul says Titus had the same pastoral care for people that he had. Now these two men, Paul and Titus, Culturally speaking, were worlds apart. Paul was a Jew, while Titus was a Greek. And yet, here's a wonderful example of the godly presence of one brother from one place comforting another from a different place. 
Brothers, you don't need to be a Filipino to comfort a downcast brother from the Philippines. You just need to be a Christian. You can be a Christ-like man from the UK and comfort a brother from Ethiopia. You can be a Christ-like sister who is from India and comfort a sister from Iran or America. And here's why. Because the comfort that God works through His people is not cultural wisdom, but the wisdom of His Word. And we see that in this text. Paul was comforted by Titus's arrival. Look at verse 7. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort. Remember what comfort is? It's the power of the gospel working in someone. Paul was comforted by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. You know, Titus both saw and heard some things in these Corinthians that comforted him, and he brought that to Paul. Do you see how the Corinthians ended up ministering to Paul through Titus? So what did he see? What ministered to him? And how did he comfort Paul? Look at the text. As he told us of your longing. He told Paul that the Corinthians had repented of their folly and were now longing to be restored to Paul. Your mourning, they were lamenting, grieving over their sin. Your zeal for me, they were now devoted to Paul and were greatly concerned for his well-being. Titus saw how God had worked powerfully through Paul's severe letter and how it comforted these believers. They had made progress. They had grown in their faith. And not only did this comfort encourage Titus, But through that news, he ministered to a downcast Paul. And by the Spirit, it bore this fruit. Look at the text. So that I rejoiced still more. See, hearing about what God was doing in the lives of the Corinthians, hearing those words through Titus, was the means by which God's resurrection power brought life to Paul in his sorrow, and he rejoiced still more. Seeing Titus brought him joy, but hearing about the spiritual progress of the Corinthians brought him greater comfort that increased his joy. Beloved, sometimes... The best medicine for your wounded soul, for your discouraged spirit, is to hear about what God is doing in someone else's life. Haven't you experienced times when you have read a Christian biography of what God did in someone else's life and experienced comfort? In your affliction? Haven't there been times when you heard the testimony about God's sustaining and sanctifying grace in the life of another believer, another member, and it brought joy to your weary soul? Beloved, if you rejoiced, if you rejoiced hearing the stories of our members who had received God's comfort over the past 10 years at our anniversary dinner, If you rejoiced, 
that evening, despite your own troubles, then brothers and sisters, rejoice even more. For you were being comforted with the comfort of others. Rejoice, for the Spirit is at work in you through the ministry of others. Now, how were these Corinthians comforted? What was the means of their comfort? Well, the means of their comfort were the words of Paul, the words of that severe letter that the Lord used to convict the Corinthians of their sin. And he tells us that. Look at verses 8 to 9. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, even if I caused you pain, (coughs) pain from one Christian to another, Beloved, speaking the truth in love, which is what Paul did, does that sometimes. Causes pain. Devoting yourself to the spiritual well-being of other brothers and sisters means that sometimes they will be hurt by what you say. And that's okay. I'm not talking about sin causing hurt. I'm talking about the truth causing hurt. You need to see yourself as a physician of the soul as you lovingly hold out what people have done against the mirror of God's word. And they won't like what you're showing them. You see, the sanctification of a believer does not take place under anesthesia. Now, sometimes God's grace is very uncomfortable. It can be painful. But just as painful procedures are necessary to bring about healing in your body, painful conversations need to be had in order to bring about the healing and comfort of someone's soul. And you must love someone enough, like Paul loved the Corinthians, to risk being slandered. And embrace the awkwardness. And minister comfort to someone for their eternal good. You know, Paul says, even if I made you grieve, if I caused you to be distressed by my words, look at the text, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Here's what he means. Paul says, I know that that was a hard letter to read. And I knew that it would sadden you. I knew that you would feel hurt. And that it would cause you distress. In fact, I regretted it, but only for a little while. Way back then. I don't regret it now. Not any longer. Now I rejoice. I'll tell you why. I rejoice not because I enjoyed seeing you in pain, but because I see what God did through that letter. I see the outcome. I see the results. I see how God comforted you. Your grief... Your hurt led to repentance. 
you felt a godly grief. You felt a godly hurt. Literally, a grief according to God. A grief that produced repentance. And that's why I rejoice, he says. You suffered no loss through us. There was no damage done. No loss but gain. And here's why. Look at verse 10. For godly grief, some translations say godly sorrow, when you grieve the way God wants you to grieve, as you see your sins in light of the gospel, that grief... And by that he means God's grace in that grief. That's what makes it godly. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul says when you grieve over your sins rightly, it produces a repentance. Repentance means a change of mind, a turning away from your sins and turning towards God in Christ. It leads to salvation without regret. Paul is not saying that repentance is the grounds for our justification. No, we are saved by trusting in Christ alone. We're not saved by our repentance. We must repent and believe. But those two actions are the result of God's grace in our new hearts. Repentance, dear friends, is a gospel grace. Repentance is a gospel grace. Article 10 of our statement of faith says this, Repentance is a gospel grace wherein a person who has been made alive by the Holy Spirit is deeply convicted of the manifold evil of his sin and its offense against God. See, salvation in this text refers to our sanctification, our growth in holiness, which we strive to bring to completion in the fear of God. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance is evidence that we have been truly saved and are being sanctified. No one who has ever repented as a believer, which is every day, no Christian will ever regret, will regret that repentance. Seeing that this is how the Lord transforms us and grows us in Christ's likeness. Now the opposite of this is worldly grief or worldly sorrow that leads to death. The the death here is held out in contrast with our sanctification leading to our glorification. The death here refers to our eternal death and condemnation. So understanding the difference between godly grief and worldly grief is eternally significant. It's a matter of life and death. One demonstrates that we are saved, are being saved, and will be saved. The other, that's worldly sorrow or worldly repentance, which is basically unrepentance. If we continue in it, if we persist in it, will eventually show that we are veiled and blinded. This is especially important to see in this letter because of their sin. By turning away from Paul and the true apostolic gospel, they were in grave spiritual danger. In 2 Corinthians, we see that repentance and reconciliation towards God cannot be separated from reconciliation to Paul and his gospel. 
Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, since the church is founded on the apostolic word, we can say that there cannot be true repentance and reconciliation if someone does not acknowledge their sins according to the apostolic word, according to the scriptures. Friends, genuine repentance flows from godly grief. We understand that. That's what Paul says. But how do we distinguish it from worldly grief? Well, to help us understand that, Paul gives us a sevenfold description of genuine repentance. A sevenfold description of genuine repentance. Now, remember, as he describes this, he's not only commending the Corinthians and rejoicing over God's comfort to them. Titus has already told him about their repentance. He's rejoicing as he's describing them, but he's also building up the entire church so that those who haven't yet repented and haven't yet reconciled themselves to him will also be challenged to do so through these words. And beloved, as you hear this sevenfold description, I pray that the Lord will stir your hearts, that you will evaluate your own hearts and rejoice in the comfort of genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is marked by, number one, solemn diligence. Solemn diligence. Look at verse 11. We're, for we see, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Earnestness. A Christian who sees his sin must see his sin and define his sin in light of the Scriptures. And he must see it as soul-threatening. He must be earnest or sincere in carefully searching his heart. He must understand the error of his ways. He must study the circumstances and all the little steps that led up to it. He must examine himself to see where and how his emotions led him astray. He must identify ungodly and worldly counsel. He must recognize deceitful and sinful desires that led to those thoughts or actions. He or she must call sinful what God calls sinful. She must be earnest to weed out those sinful desires out of the seedbed of her heart. To confess them, kill them, and make no compromise with sin. Number two, genuine repentance is marked by a deep desire to change. Verse 11, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. This is a holy passion to make things right in the sight of God. To do what is pleasing in his sight. In this case, Titus told Paul that the majority of the Corinthians had mourned over their sins and they were eager to reconcile to him. And brothers and sisters, the motive to change is also important and must be taken into account. For even an unbeliever, when he is caught for robbery and sent to prison, may desire to change his ways just to remove himself from prison. To remove himself from the suffering of the consequences of his actions. That's a worldly grief. 
Godly sorrow produces in a believer the realization that first and foremost, they have dishonored God and have grieved His Spirit. And they desire to change. They desire to seek His forgiveness and restore the sweet communion they had with the Lord to reconcile to Him and walk in the light. Beloved, genuine repentance is willing to listen and to do whatever it takes, even at great cost to themselves, in order to turn from their sin and turn to Christ for His cleansing power. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Number three, genuine repentance is good and angry. What indignation! This is a godly anger. This is to be distressed and mentally agitated over your sin. Anyone who is genuinely repentant hates what God hates. They loathe their sin and are repulsed by their sinful thoughts and actions. In other words, they don't take their sin lightly and they see it as exceedingly evil. They desire to kill it and not make peace with it. Friends, any other kind of distress is worldly. You remember Judas? Judas was distressed over his sin. And he went and killed himself. Esau was distressed. He cried a lot. After realizing what he had done, he wept. But he did not find repentance. He was more concerned about getting back what was his, that blessing, than being made right with God. You see, somebody could be indignant, really upset, because they got caught. Their sin was found out. This too is worldly sorrow where a sinner is agitated because he can no longer do what he wants. Others may be terrified at the prospect of repercussions and consequences of their actions. Instead of first taking God's side against their sin. Thomas Watson wrote, it's one thing to be a terrified sinner, it's quite another thing to be a repenting sinner. Number four, genuine repentance is marked by holy fear. Verse 11, what fear? Genuine repentance is marked by a fear of God, a sense of trembling and brokenheartedness that we have sinned against the one in the presence of whom angels hide their faces and cry out, holy, holy, holy. It's that sense of realizing What it cost the Lord Jesus to bear that sin on the cross. But it's also recognizing that one day we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account to Him for all that we have done in the body. Number five, genuine repentance is marked by a passion for righteousness. Verse 11, what longing! Now, this is a desire to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Such repentance is marked by a, a desire to, to flee to Christ by faith and seek His forgiveness and cleansing. You know, as one writer said, repentance is the tear of love dropping from the eye of faith when it fixes on Christ crucified. 
It is to seek the forgiveness of those you have sinned against. To resolve by the grace of God to turn away from your former practices and pursue reconciliation and restoration. As the Puritan John Angle James once said, our repentance should be as notorious as our sin. Our repentance ought to be as notorious as our sin. Or as John the Baptist said, we must, keep, we must bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You remember what he said when the selfish crowds asked him for specifics? Give us specifics, John. What does that mean? What do you want us to do? And he said, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And the greedy tax collectors came along and, and said, well, what does that mean for us, John? And he said, collect no more than you are authorized to. And then the discontent and cruel soldiers came along and said, John, what does that mean? What, what, what does it look like for us to bear fruits in keeping with repentance? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. It's a passion for righteousness. Friend, if you're watching pornography or if you are engaged in a sexual relationship with someone who is not your wife, what do you think? What do you think genuine repentance should look like? Number six, genuine rep repentance recognizes the effect of your sin on others. Verse 11, what zeal! No one sins in isolation. Even the man who is sinning in secret is hardening his heart to the extent that it will impair his ability to minister to others in the body and subsequently fail to do what God has called him to do as a member. You know, the zeal that Paul refers to here is the determination that the unrepentant majority displayed in receiving and desiring to obey Paul's word in that severe letter. They understood. They understood the impact their actions had on the health of the church. And they wanted to do the right thing. Number seven. Genuine repentance is marked by a love for justice. Verse 11. What punishment. You know, this word that is translated as punishment can also be translated as doing justice. It's a readiness to right the wrongs. In this case, it was to discipline the man who had sinfully opposed Paul. And his discipline is described as, you remember, the punishment by the majority. Beloved, do you see what happened at Corinth when a majority of the church repented? They disciplined unrepentant sin. Churches who do not practice biblical church discipline are in sin. Beloved, when the Lord comforts us with His Word and we repent, there must be a willingness to right every wrong. And that means if you have committed a crime, turn yourself into the law. It means making restitution if you have sinned by stealing. It is to have the heart of Zacchaeus who said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
Beloved, if you have confessed your sin to the Lord, if you have sought His forgiveness, but have not sought the forgiveness of the person you have sinned against, you've not pursued reconciliation with them, then you have not truly righted your wrongs. Paul, however, was confident, based on what he had heard from Titus, that the unrepentant were genuinely unrepentant. Sorry, that the repentant were genuinely repentant. And so he says in verse 11, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, that doesn't mean that they were sinless. He doesn't mean that. He, He doesn't mean that they did no wrong. No, he's saying that they had proved by their actions that they were now walking in purity, in holiness. And this is why he wrote that letter in the first place. Through the comfort that he ministered to them in his pain of rejection, as he did that, he was confident that they were genuine believers who were led astray, but would be restored to him by the grace of God. He was working for their faith and for their joy. Look at verses 12 to 13. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, that's the man who opposed him, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, that's Paul himself, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. You know, as Paul wrote that letter in much anguish, he desired that the Lord would comfort the Corinthians in such a way that they would come to recognize that their faith was genuine. Verse 13, Therefore, says Paul, we are comforted. Beloved, we must learn to see and rejoice in the comfort of repentance. Because when we see it in the lives of our people, we can rejoice that the Spirit is at work in our hearts and in that we can greatly rejoice. If we are not sensitive to and are, uh, and are not aware of the Christian grace of daily repentance among the saints, we deprive ourselves of great joy and assurance. You know, the comfort of repentance is a wonderful thing and ought to produce in us humility and gladness. Beloved, we stumble in many ways, so many ways, every day. And the Lord works in us to bring us to repentance through the ministry of the Word, through His precious saints. Share these stories of everyday repentance that you experience in your life. Share them with one another and rejoice. And did you know that as we rejoice, God multiplies our joy? Our joy is multiplied when we see other people's joys? That brings us to our third point. The third truth that we must learn to see and rejoice over is this, the gospel comfort of genuine joy. Now, in addition to being comforted by the news of the Corinthians' repentance and rejoicing in that, Paul tells us that his joy was multiplied when he saw the joy of his friend Titus. Friends, genuine joy is contagious. And it's a precious comfort we have from the hand of the Lord. Look at verses 13 and 14. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. 
because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. Whatever he saw and heard from them encouraged him, and he was refreshed. You know, I suppose Titus would have gone to Corinth carrying Paul's letter of rebuke with some, with some trepidation. After all, Paul had told him how badly things had gone, and Titus must have thought, oh boy, I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder how they'll react. Can you imagine his joy when the majority of the congregation repented? Oh, what an encouragement that must have been for him. And Paul's joy was doubled upon seeing Titus's joy. Because when he sent Titus, he had told him that he was confident about how most of them would respond. And so Paul is simply thrilled. Look at verse 14. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. I was right. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. You know, Paul says, when I saw Titus's joy, oh... It just made me so much more confident about your faith. Beloved, Paul rejoiced more upon seeing Titus's joy, not because Titus' Titus's cheerful personality somewhat, somehow supplemented Paul's joy, but because Titus's joy was rooted in the objective work of God. It was grounded in the gospel comfort that the Corinthians had received. Look at verses 15 to 16. And his affection for you, Titus's compassion, his love for them, his affection for you is even greater. What's informing that? As he remembers the obedience of you all. You see, this was the result of God's comfort. Through Paul's words of hard love, it resulted in true repentance and the obedience of faith. And notice the attitude that their obedience had. How you received him with fear and trembling. The Corinthians received Titus and the letter as though they were receiving Paul himself and the power of the gospel fueled their repentance and obedience. You know that phrase, fear and trembling? That's actually an Old Testament phrase. It's how people respond to the Lord's presence and power. This is how they responded to Yahweh's presence and power. And Paul frequently uses it in his epistles. The most famous one is in Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation, he says to the congregation at Philippi. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Beloved, this ought to be our approach towards God's Word and biblical counsel. We must let His Word into our hearts and allow our minds to marinate in God's grace, as it were, and to turn to Him in repentance and faith and obey Him in fear and trembling, and to do it all knowing and rejoicing that it is His Holy Spirit that is at work in us. Beloved, when you witness the Spirit producing the comfort of joy in your brother or sister, 
because you are united together in the body of Christ, He causes your heart to rejoice even more. We rejoice with those who rejoice. What a precious comfort that we receive. What a blessing that our joys are multiplied. And you know what else is encouraging? God uses our repentance and our obedience to increase our affection for one another. I hope you see that in the text. Titus loved these Corinthians, but his affection for them grew as he remembered their obedience. No wonder Paul says in verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Beloved, these are the three truths that we as members of this body must search and see and rejoice in. The comfort of genuine fellowship, the comfort of genuine repentance, and the comfort of genuine joy, especially in the joy of others. Now, friend, if you're not a Christian, you can know this comfort and you can know this God that we proclaim week after week. You can know Him if you turn away from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We rejoice in this divine comfort because Jesus purchased it for us with His own blood. You see, every human being has sinned against God And we deserve not His comfort, but His condemnation. Not His comfort, but His condemnation. The wages of sin is death. And yet in His great love, God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross, to bear God's judgment in the place of sinners for anyone who would repent of their sins and believe in Him. And then on the third day, He rose from the dead to give us new life and to reconcile us to God. Friends, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now you heard me say that repentance is a gospel grace. God in His grace, by the power of the Spirit, miraculously and wondrously changes you by giving you a new heart so that you can repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So you might be thinking, well, how do I know that God has done that for me? Well, He does it as you hear the words of the good news of Jesus Christ that you just heard from me right now, of what Jesus did to save sinners. God works as you hear that good news. And if you're wondering how do I know if He's given me the grace to repent and believe, it's very simple. Repent and believe. The only way you can do is if God has first done. You want to know if He's done it? Repent and believe. Oh friend, receive the comfort of God's grace today. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let your quest for happiness and comfort end today by turning to God in Christ, the source of all comfort. His grace is marvelous. His grace is matchless and it is freely bestowed on all who believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the comfort we have because of Christ. And Lord, we pray 
for each one of us. And as we heard your words, that you would work in us to produce in us a deep repentance that leads to joy. Comfort us in our affliction. Wake us up from the sleepiness of sin. Open our eyes to see the glory of Christ and cause our hearts to cling to Him. Cause us to rejoice in Him alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.